0: Hello there, and welcome to down to sleep. This is my podcast of softly spoken audiobooks and bedtime stories to help you get a good night's rest. Please do leave a positive review, a thumbs up or five stars on whatever app you're listening on. If you would prefer to listen on YouTube, then head over to youtube.com slash down to sleep. There is also a Patreon where you can support me and the podcast and get two readings every week. Members of the Patreon hear everything first and get to vote on what books I read next and prioritize, so come and join me at patreon.com downtosleep. You can find links to those and my Instagram in the info for this episode. Let's go ahead and take a nice deep breath, let's tuck you in, and let's get down to sleep. Chapter 4. Jonathan Harker's Journal Continued. I awoke in my own bed. If it be that I had not dreamt, the Count must have carried me here. I tried to satisfy myself on the subject, but could not arrive at any unquestionable result. To be sure, there were certain small evidences, such as that my clothes were folded and laid by in a manner which was not my habit. My watch was still unwound, and I am rigorously accustomed to wind it the last thing before bed. These things are no proof, for they may have been evidences that my mind was not as usual, and from some cause or another I had certainly been much upset. I must watch for proof. Of one thing I am glad. If it was that the Count carried me here and undressed me, he must have been hurried in his task my pockets are intact I am sure this diary would have been a mystery to him which he would not have brooked he would have taken or destroyed it as I look around this room although it has been to me so full of fear it is now sort of a sanctuary for nothing can be more dreadful than those awful women who were who are waiting to suck my blood 18th of May I have been down to look at that room again in daylight for I must know the truth when I got to the doorway at the top of the stairs I found it closed it had been so forcibly driven against the jam that part of the woodwork was splintered I could see that the bolt of the lock had not been shot but the door is fastened from the inside I fear it was no dream and must act on this surmise. 19th of May. I am surely in the toils. Last night the Count asked me in the suavest tones to write three letters. One saying that my work here was nearly done, and that I should start for home within a few days. Another that I was starting on the next morning from the time of the letter, and a third that I had left the castle and arrived at Bistritz. I would fain have rebelled, but felt that in the present state of things it would be madness to quarrel openly with the Count, whilst I am absolutely in his power. And to refuse would be to excite his suspicion, to arouse his anger. He knows that I know too much, and that I must not live lest I be dangerous to him. My only chance is to prolong my opportunities. Something may occur which will give me a chance to escape. I saw in his eyes something of that gathering wrath which is manifest when he hurled that fair woman from him. He explained to me that posts were few and uncertain, that my writing now would ensure ease of mind to my friends. He assured me with so much impressiveness, that he would countermand the later letters, which would be held over at Bistritz until due time, in case chance would admit of my prolonging my stay, that to oppose him would have been to create new suspicion. I therefore pretended to fall in with his views, and asked him what dates I should put on the letters. He calculated a minute and then said, The first should be June 12th, the second June 19th, and the third June twenty nine. I know now the span of my life. God help me. 28th of May. There is a chance of escape, or at any rate of being able to send word home. A band of gypsies have come to the castle and are encamped in the courtyard. I have notes of them in my book. They are peculiar to this part of the world, though allied to ordinary gypsies all over. There are thousands of them in Hungary and Transylvania, who are almost outside all law. They attach themselves as a rule to some great noble and call themselves by his name. They are fearless and without religion, save superstition, and they talk only their own varieties of the Romany tongue. I shall write some letters home, and shall try to get to have them posted. I have already spoken to them through my window to begin acquaintanceship. They took their hats off and made obeisance and many signs, which, however, I could not understand any more than I could their spoken language. I have written the letters. Mina's is in shorthand, and I simply ask Mr. Hawkins to communicate with her. To her I have explained my situation, but without the horrors which I may only surmise. It would shock and frighten her to death were I to expose my heart to her. Should the letters not carry, then the Count shall not yet know my secret or the extent of my knowledge." I have given the letters. I threw them through the bars of my window with a gold piece, and made what signs I could to have them posted. The man who took them pressed them to his heart and bowed, and then put them in his cap. I could do no more. I stole back to the study and began to read. The count has come. He sat down beside me and said in his smoothest voice as he opened two letters, The Suscani has given me these, of which though I know not whence they come, I shall of course take care, see. He must have looked at it. One is from you, to my friend Peter Hawkins. The other, here he caught sight of strange symbols as he opened the envelope, The dark look came into his face, and his eyes blazed wickedly. The other is a vile thing, an outrage upon friendship and hospitality. It is not signed, so it cannot matter to us. And he calmly held letter and envelope in the flame of the lamp until they were consumed. He went on. The letter to Hawkins... "'That I shall, of course, send on, since it is yours. "'Your letters are sacred to me. "'Your pardon, my friend, that unknowingly I did break the seal. "'Will you not cover it again?' "'He held out the letter to me, "'and with a courteous bow handed me a clean envelope. "'I could only redirect it and hand it to him in silence.' When he went out of the room, I could hear the key turn softly. A minute later, I went over and tried it, and the door was locked. When, an hour or two after, the Count came quietly into the room, his coming awakened me. I had gone to sleep on the sofa. He was very courteous and very cheery in his manner. Seeing that I had been sleeping, he said, so, my friend, you are tired. Get to bed. There is the shortest rest. I may not have the pleasure to talk tonight. There are many labors to me. But you will sleep, I pray. I passed my room and went to bed. Strange to say, I slept without dreaming. Despair has its own calms. 31st of May. This morning, when I woke, I thought I would provide myself with some paper and envelopes from my bag, and keep them in my pocket, so that I might write in case I should get an opportunity, but again, a surprise, again, a shock, every scrap of paper was gone, and with it, all my notes, my memoranda relating to railways and travel, my letter of credit, In fact, all that might be useful to me were I once outside this castle. I sat and pondered a while, and then some thought occurred to me. I searched the portamento in the wardrobe where I had placed my clothes. The suit in which I had travelled was gone, and also my overcoat and rug. I could find no trace of them anywhere. This looked like some new scheme of villainy. 17th of June This morning, as I was sitting on the edge of my bed, cudgelling my brains, I heard, without a cracking of whips and pounding and scalping of horses' feet, up the rocky path beyond the courtyard. With joy, I hurried to the window and saw drive into the yard two great later wagons each drawn by eight sturdy horses, and at the end of each pair a Slovak, with his wide hat and great nail-studded belt, dirty sheepskin and high boots. They had also their long staves in hand. I ran to the door, intending to descend and try and join them through the main hall. I thought that way might be opened again. Again a shock. My door was fastened on the outside. I ran to the window and cried to them. They looked up at me stupidly and pointed. But just then the hetman of the Siskani came out. Seeing them pointing to my window said something at which they laughed. Henceforth no effort of mine, no piteous cry or agonized entreaty would make them even look at me they resolutely turned away. The later wagons contained great square boxes with handles of thick rope. These were evidently empty by the ease with which the Slovaks handled them, by their resonance at which they were roughly moved. When they were all unloaded and packed in a great heap in one corner of the yard, the Slovaks were given some money by the Susgani, Spitting on it for luck, they lazily went each to their horse's head. Shortly afterwards, I heard the cracking of their whips die away in the distance. 24th of June, before morning. Last night, the Count left me early and locked himself into his own room. As soon as I dared, I ran up the winding stair and looked out the window, which opened south. I thought I would watch for the count, for there is something going on. The Susgani are quartered somewhere in the castle, doing work of some kind. I know it. For now, and then I hear a faraway muffled sound, as of mattock and Spade. Whatever it is, it must be the end of some ruthless villainy. I had been at the window somewhat less than half an hour, when I saw something coming out of the Count's window. I drew back and watched carefully, and saw the whole man emerge. It was a new shock to me that he had on the suit of clothes which I had worn whilst travelling here. Slung over his shoulder was the terrible bag which I had seen the women take away. There could be no doubt as to his quest, and in my garb too. This, then, is his new scheme of evil. He will allow others to see me as they think, so that he may both leave evidence that I have been seen in towns or villages posting my letters, and that any wickedness which he may do shall, by the local people, be attributed to me. It makes me rage to think that this can go on. Whilst I am shut up here, a veritable prisoner, but without that protection of the law, which is even a criminal's right and consolation. I thought I would watch for the Count's return, and for a long time I sat doggedly at the window. Then I began to notice that there were some quaint little specks floating in the rays of moonlight. They were like the tiniest grains of dust, They whirled around and gathered in clusters, in a nebulous sort of way. I watched them with a sense of soothing, a sort of calm stole over me. I leaned back in the embrasure in a more comfortable position, so I could enjoy more fully the aerial gamboling. Something made me start up. A low, piteous howling of dogs somewhere far down in the valley, hidden from my sight. Louder, it seemed to ring in my ears. The floating motes of dust would take new shapes to the sound as they danced in the moonlight. I felt myself struggling to awake. To some cool of my instincts, my very soul was struggling My half-remembered sensibilities were striving to answer the call. I was becoming hypnotized. Quicker and quicker danced the dust. Moonbeams seemed to quiver as they went by me, into the mass of gloom beyond. More and more they gathered till they seemed to take dim phantom shapes. And then I started... Broad awake and in full possession of my senses, and ran screaming from the place. The phantom shapes which were becoming gradually materialized from the moonbeams were those of the three ghostly women to whom I was doomed. I fled and felt somewhat safer in my own room, where there was no moonlight and where the lamp was burning brightly. As I sat, I heard a sound in the courtyard, the agonized cry of a woman. I rushed to the window and throwing it up, peered out between the bars. There indeed was a woman with disheveled hair, holding her hands over her heart as one distressed with running. She was leaning against a corner of the gateway. When she saw my face at the window, she threw herself forward and shouted in a voice laden with menace. Monster, give me my child. She threw herself on her knees, and raising up her hands cried the same words in tones which wrung my heart. She tore her hair and beat her breast, and abandoned herself to all the violences of extravagant emotion. Finally, she threw herself forward, and though I could not see her, I could hear her naked hands beating against the door. Somewhere high overhead, probably on the tower, I heard the voice of the Count calling in his harsh metallic whisper. His call seemed to be answered from far and wide by the howling of wolves. Before many minutes had passed, a pack of them poured, like a pent-up dam when liberated, through the wide entrance into the courtyard. There was no cry from the woman, and the howling of the wolves was but short. Before long, they streamed away, licking their lips. I could not pity her, for I knew now what had become of her child, and she was better dead. What shall I do? What can I do? How can I escape from this dreadful thing of night, gloom, and fear? 25th of June, morning. No man knows till he has suffered from the night how sweet and how dear to his heart and I the morning can be when the sun grew so high this morning that it struck the top of the great gateway opposite my window the high spot which it touched seemed to me as if the dove from the ark had lighted there my fear fell from me as if it had been a vaporous garment which dissolved in warmth I must take action of some sort whilst the courage of the day is upon me Last night, one of my post-dated letters went to post. The first of that fatal series which is to blot out the very traces of my existence from this earth. Let me not think of it. Action. It has always been at night time that I've been molested and threatened, or in some way in danger or in fear. I have not yet seen the Count in the daylight... Can it be that he sleeps when others wake that he may be awake whilst they sleep if i could only get into his room but there is no possible way the door is always locked there is no way for me yes there is a way if one dares to take it where his body has gone why may not another body go I have seen him myself crawl from his window. Why should I not imitate him and go in by his window? The chances are desperate, but my need is more desperate still. I shall risk it. At the worst, it can be only death. And a man's death is not a calf's. The dreaded hereafter may still be open to me. God help me in my task. Goodbye Mina. If I fail goodbye my faithful friend second father. Goodbye all. And last of all. Mina. Same day. Later. I have made the effort. And God helping me I have come back safely to this room. I must put down every detail in order. I went whilst my courage was fresh, straight to the window on the south side. At once I got outside on the narrow ledge of stone which runs around the building. The stones are big and roughly cut. The mortar has by process of time been washed away between them. I took off my boots and ventured out on the desperate way. I looked down once so as to make sure that a sudden glimpse of the awful depth would not overcome me. But after that, I kept my eyes away from it. I knew pretty well the direction and distance of the Count's window, and I made for it as well as I could, having regard to the opportunity available. I did not feel dizzy. I suppose I was too excited. The time seemed ridiculously short and I found myself standing on the windowsill, trying to raise the sash. I was filled with agitation, however, when I bent down and slid feet foremost in through the window. I looked around for the count, but with surprise and gladness I made a discovery. The room was empty. It was barely furnished with odd things which seemed to have never been used. The furniture was something the same style as that in the south rooms, and covered with dust. I looked for the key, but it was not in the lock, and I could not find it anywhere. The only thing that I found was a great heap of gold in one corner. Gold of all kinds, Roman, British... Austrian, Hungarian, Greek and Turkish money covered with a film of dust as though it had lain long in the ground none of it that I noticed was less than 300 years old there were also chains and ornaments some jewelled but all of them old and stained at one corner of the room was a heavy door I tried it since I could not find the key of the room or the key of the outer door which was the main object of my search I must make further examination all of my efforts would be in vain it was open and led through a stone passage to a circular stairway which went steeply down I descended finding carefully where I went For the stairs were dark, being only lit by a loophole in masonry. At the bottom was a dark, tunnel-like passage, through which came a deathly, sickly odour. The odour of old earth and newly turned. As I went through the passage, the smell grew closer, heavier. At last I pulled open a heavy door which stood ajar and found myself in an old ruined chapel which had evidently been used as a graveyard. The roof was broken and in two places were steps leading to vaults but the ground had recently been dug over and the earth placed in great wooden boxes. Manifestly those which had been brought by the Slovaks. There was nobody about. I made search for any further outlet, but there was none. I went over every inch of the ground so as not to lose a chance. I went down even into the vaults, where the dim light struggled. To do so was a dread to my soul. Into two of these I went and saw nothing except fragments of old coffins and piles of dust. In the third, I made a discovery. There, in one of the great boxes, of which there were fifty in all, on a pile of newly dug earth, lay the Count. He was either dead or asleep. I could not say which the eyes were open and stony but without the glassiness of death and the cheeks had the warmth of life through their pallor the lips as red as ever but there was no sign of movement no pulse no breath no beating of the heart I bent over him and tried to find a sign of life but in vain he could not have lain there for long, but the earthy smell would have passed away in a few hours. By the side of the box was its cover, pierced with holes here and there. I thought he might have the keys on him, but when I went to search I saw the dead eyes, and in them, dead though they were, such a look of hate. Unconscious of me or my presence, I fled from that place leaving the Count's room by the window. I crawled up again on the castle wall, regaining my room. I threw myself panting upon the bed and tried to think. 29th of June. Today is the date of my last letter. The Count has taken steps to prove it was genuine, for again I saw him leave the castle by the same window. In my clothes. As he went down the wall lizard fashion, I wished I had a gun or some lethal weapon that I might destroy him. But I fear no weapon wrought alone by man's hand would have any effect. I dared not wait to see him return. I feared to see those weird sisters. I came back to the library and read till I fell asleep. I was awakened by the Count, who looked at me, as grimly as a man can look, and he said, Tomorrow, my friend, we must part. You return to your beautiful England, I to some work which may have such an end that we may never meet. Your letter home has been dispatched. Tomorrow I shall not be here. All shall be ready for your journey. In the morning, come to the Sisgani. who have some labors of their own here, but also come some Slovaks. When they have gone, my carriage shall come for you. I shall bear you to Borgo Pass, to meet the diligence from Bukovina to Bistritz. But I am in hopes that I shall see more of you, "'at Castle Derkula. "'I suspected him and determined to test his sincerity. "'Sincerity, it seems like a profanation of the word "'to write it in connection with such a monster. "'So I asked him, point-blank, "'Why may I not go tonight? "'Because, dear sir, "'my coachman and horses are away on the mission.' But I would walk with pleasure. I want to get away at once. He smiled, such a soft, smooth, diabolical smile. I knew there was some trick behind the smoothness. And your baggage? I do not care about it. I can send for it sometime. The Count stood up and said with a sweet courtesy which made me rub my eyes it seemed so real. You English have a saying which is close to my heart. Its spirit is that which rules our boyars. Welcome the coming. Speed the parting guest. Come with me, my dear young friend. Not an hour shall you wait in my house against your will. Sad am I at your going, and that you so suddenly desire it. Come. Come. With a stately gravity, he, with the lamp, preceded me down the stairs and along a hall. Suddenly, he stopped. Close at hand came the howling of many wolves. It was almost as if the sound sprang up at the rising of his hand, like the music of a great orchestra seeming to leap under the baton of the conductor. After a pause of a moment... He proceeded, in his stately way, to the door and drew back the ponderous bolts, unhooked the heavy chains, and began to draw it open. To my intense astonishment, I saw it was unlocked. Suspiciously, I looked all around, but I could see no key. As the door began to open, the howling of the wolves without grew louder angrier, their red jaws with chumping teeth, their blunt-clawed feet as they leaped. They came in through the opening door. I knew then that to struggle at this moment against the Count was useless, with such allies as these at his command. I could do nothing. The door continued slowly to open. Only the Count's body stood in the gap. Suddenly it struck me that this might be the moment and means of my doom. I was to be given to the wolves at my own instigation. There was a diabolical wickedness in the idea, great enough for the Count, and as a last chance I cried out, Shut the door! I shall wait till morning! I covered my face with my hands to hide my tears of bitter disappointment. With one sweep of his powerful arm, the count threw the door shut. The great bolts clanged and echoed through the hall as they shot back into their places. In silence, we returned to the library. After a minute or two, I went to my own room. The last I saw of Count Dracula was his kissing his hand to me. A red light of triumph in his eyes and a smile that Judas in hell might be proud of. When I was in my room and about to lie down I thought I heard a whispering at my door. I went to it and I softly listened unless my ears deceived me I heard the voice of the Count. Back to your own place, the time is not yet come. Wait, have patience. Tonight is mine, tomorrow night is yours. There was a low, sweet ripple of laughter, and in a rage I threw open the door, and saw without the three terrible women licking their lips... As I appeared, they all joined in a horrible laugh and ran away. I came back to my room and threw myself on my knees. It is then so near the end. Tomorrow. Tomorrow. Lord help me and those to whom I am dear. 30th of June, morning. These may be the last words that I ever write in this diary. I slept till just before the dawn. When I woke, I threw myself on my knees, for I determined that if death came, he should find me ready. At last I felt that subtle change in the air, and I knew that morning had come. Then came the welcome cock crow, and I felt that I was safe. With a glad heart, I opened my door and I ran down the hall. I saw the door was unlocked. Now escape was before me. With hands that trembled with eagerness, I unhooked the chains and drew back the massive bolts. But the door would not move. Despair seized me. I pulled and pulled at the door and I shook it till massive as it was, it rattled in its casement. I could see the bolt shot. It had been locked after I left the count. A wild desire took me to obtain the key at any risk. I determined, then and there, to scale the wall again and gain the count's room. He might kill me, but death now seemed happier choice between two evils. Without a pause, I rushed up to the east window and I scrambled down the wall. Into the council room. It was empty, but that was as I expected. I could not see a key anywhere, but the heap of gold remained. I went through the door in the corner and down the winding stair, along the dark passage to the old chapel. I knew now well enough where to find the monster that I sought. The great box was in the same place, close against the wall, but the lid was laid on it, not fastened down, the nails ready in their places to be hammered home. I knew I must reach the body for the key, so I raised the lid and laid it back against the wall when I saw something, which filled my very soul with horror. There lay the Count, but looking as if his youth had been half-renewed. The white hair and moustache were changed to a dark iron-gray. The cheeks were fuller, the white skin seemed ruby-red underneath. The mouth was redder than ever, for on the lips were the gouts of fresh blood, which trickled from the corners of the mouth and ran over the chin and neck. Even the deep burning eyes seemed set amongst swollen flesh. The lids and pouches underneath were bloated. It seemed as if the whole awful creature were gorged with blood. He lay like a filthy leech, exhausted with repletion. I shuddered as I bent over to touch him. Every sense in me revolted at that contact, but I had to search or I was lost. The coming night might see my own body a banquet in a similar way to those horrible three. I felt all over the body, but... No sign could I find of the key. I stopped and looked at the count. A mocking smile on his bloated face which seemed to drive me mad. This was the being that I was helping to transfer to London, where perhaps for centuries to come, he might amongst its teeming millions satiate his lust for blood and create a new and ever-widening circle of semi-demons to batten on the helpless. The very thought drove me mad. A terrible desire came upon me to rid the world of such a monster. There was no lethal weapon at hand. I seized a shovel, which the workmen had been using to fill the cases. Lifting it high, I struck with the edge downward at his hateful face but as I did the head turned and the eyes fell full upon me with a blaze of basilisk horror the sight seemed to paralyze me and the shovel turned in my hand and glanced from the face nearly making a deep gash above the forehead the shovel fell from my hand across the box As I pulled it away, the flange of the blade caught the edge of the lid, which fell over again, and hid the horrid thing from my sight. The last glimpse that I had was of the bloated face, blood-stained and fixed with a grin of malice, which would have held its own in the nethermost hell. I thought and thought what should be my next move. My brain seemed on fire. I waited, with the despairing feeling growing over me. As I waited, I heard in the distance a gypsy song, sung by merry voices, coming closer. Through their song, the rolling of heavy wheels and the cracking of whips. The Siskani and the Slovaks of whom the Count had spoken were coming. With a last look around and at the box which contained the vile body... I ran from the place and I gained to the council room, determined to rush out at the moment the door should be opened. With strained ears I listened, and heard downstairs the grinding of a key in the great lock, the falling back of a heavy door. There must have been some other means of entry, or someone had a key for one of the locked doors. Then there came the sound of many feet, tramping and dying away, in some passage which sent up a clanging echo. I turned to run down again towards the vault, where I might find this new entrance, but at that moment there seemed to come a violent puff of wind, and the door to the winding stair blew too with a shock that set the dust from the lintels flying. When I ran to push it open, I found that it was hopelessly fast. I was again a prisoner. The net of doom was closing around me more closely. As I write, there is in the passage below a sound of many tramping feet. The crash of weights being set down heavily. Doubtless the boxes with their freight of earth. There is a sound of hammering, the box being nailed down. Now I can hear the heavy feet tramping again along the hall, with many other idle feet coming behind them. The door is shut, and the chains rattle. The grinding of the key in the lock. I can hear the key withdraw. Another door opens and shuts and I hear the creaking of lock and bolt. Hark, in the courtyard and down the rocky way, the roll of heavy wheels, the crack of whips, the chorus of the Sazgani as they pass into the distance. I am alone in the castle with those awful women. Mina is a woman, and there is naught in common. They are devils of the pit. I shall not remain alone with them. I shall try to scale the castle wall farther than I have yet attempted. I shall take some of the gold with me, lest I want it later. I may find a way from this dreadful place, and then a way for home. Away to the quickest and nearest train. Away from this cursed spot. From this cursed land. Where the devil and his children still walk with earthly feet. At least God's mercy is better than that of these monsters. The precipice is steep and high. At its foot a man may sleep as a man. Goodbye all. Mina A letter from Miss Mina Murray to Miss Lucy Westenra on the 9th of May. My dearest Lucy, forgive my long delay in writing, but I have been simply overwhelmed with work. The life of an assistant schoolmistress is sometimes trying. I am longing to be with you and by the sea, where we can talk together freely. "'and build our castles in the air. "'I've been working very hard lately "'because I want to keep up with Jonathan's studies. "'I've been practising shorthand very assiduously. "'When we are married, I shall be able to be useful to Jonathan, "'and if I can stenograph well enough, "'I can take down what he wants to say in this way "'and write it out for him on the typewriter, "'at which also I am practising very hard.' He and I sometimes write letters in shorthand, and he's keeping a stenographic journal of his travels abroad. When I'm with you, I shall keep a diary in the same way. I don't mean one of those two pages to the week with Sunday squeezed in a corner diaries, but a sort of journal which I can write in whenever I feel inclined. I do not suppose there will be much of interest to other people but it is not intended for them. I may show it to Jonathan someday, if there is in it anything worth sharing. But it is really an exercise book. I shall try to do what I see lady journalists do. Interviewing and writing descriptions, trying to remember conversations. I'm told that with a little practice, one can remember all that goes on, All that one hears during a day. "'However we shall see. "'I will tell you of my little plans when we meet. "'I just had a few hurried lines from Jonathan from Transylvania. "'He's well, and will be returning in about a week. "'I am longing to hear all of his news. "'It must be so nice to see strange countries. "'I wonder if we, I mean Jonathan and I, "'shall ever see them together.' There is the ten o'clock bell ringing. Goodbye. Your loving Mina. Tell me all the news when you write. You've not told me anything for a long time. I hear rumours, and especially of a tall, handsome, curly-haired man. A letter from Lucy to Mina. My dearest Mina, I must say you tax me very unfairly with being a bad correspondent. I wrote to you twice since we parted, and your last letter was only your second. Besides, I have nothing to tell you. There is really nothing to interest you. Town is very pleasant just now, and we go a good deal to picture galleries and for walks and rides in the park. As to the tall, curly-haired man, I suppose it was the one who was with me at the last pop. Someone has evidently been telling tales. That was Mr. Holmwood. He often comes to see us, and he and Mamma get on very well together. They have so many things to talk about in common. We met some time ago a man that would just do for you, if you were not already engaged, to Jonathan. He is handsome, well-off, and of good birth. He is a doctor, and really clever just fancy. He's only nine and twenty, and he has an immense lunatic asylum all under his own care. Mr. Holmwood introduced him to me, and he called here to see us, and often comes now. I think he is one of the most resolute men I ever saw, and yet the most calm. He seems absolutely imperturbable." I can fancy what a wonderful power he must have over his patients. He has a curious habit of looking one straight in the face, as if trying to read one's thoughts. He tries this on very much with me, but I flatter myself that he has got a tough nut to crack. I know that from my glass. Do you ever try to read your own face? I do, and I can tell you it's not a bad study and gives you more trouble than you can well fancy if you've never tried it. He says that I afford him a curious psychological study, and I humbly think I do. I do not, as you know, take sufficient interest in dress to be able to describe the new fashions. Dress is a bore. That is slang again. But never mind. Arthur says it every day. There. It is all out. Mina, we've told all of our secrets to each other since we were children. We've slept together, we've eaten together, laughed and cried together. And now, though I have spoken, I would like to speak more. Mina, couldn't you guess? I love him. I'm blushing as I write, for although I think he loves me, he has not told me so in words. Mina, I love him. I love him. I love him. There. That does me good. I wish I were with you, dear. Sitting by the fire undressing. As we used to sit. I would try to tell you what I feel. I do not know how I am writing this even to you. I'm afraid to stop, or I should tear up the letter. And I don't want to stop. For I do so want to tell you all. Let me hear from you at once, and tell me all that you think about it. Mina, I must stop. Good night. Bless me in your prayers, and Mina, pray for my happiness. P.S. I need not tell you that this is a secret. Good night again. Lucy. Letter from Lucy to Mina. The 24th of May. My dearest Mina. Thanks and thanks and thanks again for your sweet letter. It was so nice to be able to tell you and to have your sympathy. My dear, it never rains but it pours. How true the old proverbs are. Here am I, who shall be twenty in September. And yet I never had a proposal till today. Not a real proposal. And today I have had three. Just fancy three proposals in one day isn't it awful I feel sorry really and truly sorry for two of the poor fellows Mina I am so happy that I don't know what to do with myself and three proposals but for goodness sake don't tell any of the girls they would be getting all sorts of extravagant ideas and imagining themselves injured and slighted if in their very first day at home they do not get six at least Some girls are vain. You and I, Mina, dear, who are engaged and are going to settle down soon soberly into old married women, can despise vanity. Well, I must tell you about the three, but you must keep it a secret, dear, from everyone, except, of course, Jonathan. You will tell him, because I would, if I were in your place, certainly tell Arthur a woman ought to tell her husband everything, don't you think so, dear? And I must be fair. Men like women, certainly their wives, to be quite as fair as they are. And women, I am afraid, are not always quite as fair as they should be. Well, my dear, number one came just before lunch. I told you of him, Dr. John Seward, the lunatic asylum man with the strong jaw and the good forehead." "'He was very cool outwardly, but was nervous all the time. "'He had evidently been schooling himself as to all sorts of little things and remembered them. "'But he almost managed to sit down on his silk hat, which men don't generally do when they are cool. "'And then, when he wanted to appear at ease, he kept playing with a lancet in a way that made me nearly scream. "'He spoke to me Mina very straightforwardly he told me how dear I was to him though he had known me so little and what his life would be with me to help and cheer him he was going to tell me how unhappy he would be if I did not care for him but when he saw me cry he said that he was a brute and he would not add to my present trouble then he broke off and asked if I could love him in time and when I shook my head, his hands trembled. With some hesitation, he asked me if I cared already for anyone else. He put it very nicely, saying that he did not want to wring any confidence from me, but only to know because if a woman's heart was free, a man might have hope. And then, Mina, I felt a sort of duty to tell him that there was someone. I only told him that much, and as he stood up and he looked very strong and very grave as he took both of my hands in his and said that he hoped that I would be happy that if I ever wanted a friend that I must count him one of my best oh Mina, dear I can't help crying you must excuse this letter being all blotted being proposed to is all very nice and all that sort of thing But it isn't at all the happy thing when you have to see a poor fellow, whom you know loves you, honestly, going away, looking all broken-hearted, to know that no matter what he may say at that moment, you are passing quite out of his life. My dear, I must stop here at present. I feel so miserable, though I am so happy. Arthur has just gone and I feel in better spirits than when I left off, so I can go on telling you about the day. Well, my dear, number two came after lunch. He is such a nice fellow. An American from Texas. He looks so young and fresh. It seems almost impossible that he's been to so many places and has had such adventures. I sympathize with poor Desdemona, "'when she had such a dangerous stream poured in her ear. "'I suppose we women are such cowards "'that we think a man will save us from fears, "'and we marry him. "'I know now what I would do if I were a man "'and I wanted to make a girl love me. "'No, I don't, "'for there was Mr. Morris telling us his stories, "'and Arthur never told any. "'And yet I am somewhat previous.' Mr. Quincy P. Morris found me alone. It seems that a man always does find a girl alone. No, he doesn't, for Arthur tried to make a chance, and I helping him all I could. I'm not ashamed to say it now. I must tell you beforehand that Mr. Morris doesn't always speak slang. That is to say, he never does so to strangers or before them, for he is really well-educated and has exquisite manners." But he found out that it amused me to hear him talk American slang. And whenever I was present, and there was no one to be shocked, he said such funny things. I am afraid, my dear, he has to invent it all, for it fits exactly into whatever else he has to say. But this is a way slang has. I do not know myself if I shall ever speak slang. I do not know if Arthur likes it. I have never heard him use any of it yet. Well, Mr. Morris sat down beside me and looked as happy and jolly as he could, but I could see all the same that he was very nervous. He took my hand in his and said ever so sweetly, Miss Lucy, I know I ain't good enough to regulate the fixings of your little shoes, but I guess if you wait till you find a man that is, you will go join them seven young women with the lamps when you quit. Won't you just hitch up alongside me and let us go down the long road together, driving in double harness? Well, he did look so good-humoured and so jolly that it didn't seem half so hard to refuse him as it did poor Dr. Seward. So I said as lightly as I could that I did not know anything of hitching and that I wasn't broken to harness at all yet then he said that he had spoken in a light manner and he hoped that if he had made a mistake in doing so on so grave and so momentous an occasion for him that i would forgive him he really did look serious when he was saying it and i couldn't help feeling a bit serious too i know mina but you will think me a horrid flirt i couldn't help feeling a sort of exaltation that he was number two in one day and then my dear before i could say a word he began pouring out a perfect torrent of love-making laying his very heart and soul at my feet he looked so earnest over it that i shall never again think that a man must be playful always and never earnest because he is merry at times i suppose he saw something in my face which checked him for he suddenly stopped and said with a sort of "'manly fervour that I could have loved him if I had been free. "'Lucy, you are an honest-hearted girl, I know. "'I should not be here speaking to you as I am now "'if I did not believe you clean grit right through to the depths of your soul. "'Tell me, like one good fellow to another, "'is there anyone else that you care for? "'And if there is, I'll never trouble you a hair's breadth again.' will be if you will let me a very faithful friend my dear Mina why are men so noble when we women are so little worthy of them here was I almost making fun of this great-hearted true gentleman I burst into tears I'm afraid my dear you will think this a very sloppy letter in more ways than one and I really felt very badly Why can't they let a girl marry three men, or as many as want her, save all this trouble? But this is heresy, and I must not say it. I'm glad to say that, though I was crying. I was able to look into Mr. Morris's brave eyes, and I told him straight. Yes, there is someone I love, though he has not told me yet that he even loves me. I was right to speak to him so frankly, for... Whiter light came into his face. He put out both of his hands and took mine, and said in a hearty way, That's my brave girl. It's better worth being late for a chance of winning you than being in time for any other girl in the world. Don't cry, my dear. If it's for me, I'm a hard nut to crack, and I take it standing up. If that other fellow doesn't know his happiness, well, he'd better look for it soon. Or he'll have to deal with me. Little girl, your honesty and pluck have made me a friend. And that's rarer than a lover. It's more unselfish, anyhow. My dear, I'm going to have a pretty lonely walk between this and Kingdom Come. Won't you give me one kiss? It'll be something to keep off the darkness now and then. You can, you know, if you like. For that other good fellow... He must be a good fellow, my dear, and a fine fellow, or you could not love him, hasn't spoken yet. That quite won me, Mina, for it was brave and sweet of him, and noble too, and he was so sad. So I leant over and kissed him. He stood up with my two hands in his, and as he looked down into my face, I'm afraid I was blushing very much, and he said... "'Little girl, I hold your hand and you've kissed me. "'And if these things don't make us friends, then nothing ever will. "'Thank you for your sweet honesty to me and goodbye.' "'He wrung my hand and, taking up his hat, "'he went straight out of the room without looking back, "'without a tear or a quiver or a pause, "'and I'm crying like a baby. "'Why must a man like that be made unhappy?' when there are lots of girls about who would worship the very ground that he trod on I know I would if I were free only I don't want to be free my dear, this quite upset me I feel I cannot write of happiness just at once I don't wish to tell you of number three until it can all be happy ever your loving Lucy P.S. about number three I I needn't tell you of number three, need I? Besides, it was also confused. It seemed only a moment from his coming into the room until both his arms were wrapped around me and he was kissing me. I am very, very happy and I don't know what I have done to deserve it. I must only try in the future to show that I am not ungrateful to God for all of his goodness to me, sending me such a lover, such a husband, such a friend. Goodbye. Dr. Seward's Diary Kept in phonograph 25th of May Ebb tide in appetite today Cannot eat, cannot rest, so diary instead Since my rebuff of yesterday I have sort of an empty feeling Nothing in the world seems of sufficient importance to be worth the doing As I know that the only cure for this sort of thing was work, I went down amongst the patients. I picked out one who has afforded me a study of much interest. He is so quaint, and I am determined to understand him as well as I can. Today I seem to get nearer than ever before to the heart of the mystery. I questioned him more fully than I had ever done with a view to making myself master of the facts of his hallucination. In my manner of doing it there was, I now see, something of a cruelty. I seemed to wish to keep him to the point of his madness, a thing which I avoid with the patience as I would the mouth of hell. Under what circumstances would I not avoid the pit of hell? Hell has its price." If there be anything behind this instinct, it will be valuable to trace it afterwards accurately. So I had better commence to do so. R. M. Renfield. Sanguine temperament. Great physical strength. Morbidly excitable. Periods of gloom, ending in some fixed idea which I cannot make out. I presume that the sanguine temperament itself and the disturbing influence end in a mentally accomplished finish. Possibly a dangerous man. Probably dangerous, if unselfish. In selfish men, caution is as secure an armor for their foes as for themselves. What I think of on this point is, when the self is the fixed point, the centripetal force is balanced with the centrifugal when duty, a cause, etc., is the fixed point, the latter force is paramount. An only accident, or a series of accidents, can balance it. Letter from Quincy Morris to Arthur Holmwood My dear Art, we've told yarns by the campfire in the prairies and dressed one another's wounds after trying a landing at the Marquesas we drank drunk healths on the shore of Titicaca. There are more yarns to be told, and other wounds to be healed, and another health to be drunk. Will you let this be at my campfire tomorrow night? I have no hesitation in asking you, as I know a certain lady is engaged to a certain dinner party, and that you are free. There will be only one other, our old pal at the Korea, jack seward he's coming too and we both want to mingle our weeps over the wine cup and drink a health with all our hearts to the happiest man in all the wide world who has won the noblest heart that god has made and the best worth winning we promise you a hearty welcome a loving greeting and a health that is true as your own right hand We shall both swear to leave you at home if you drink too deep to a certain pair of eyes. Come. Yours as ever and always, Quincy P. Morris. Telegram from Arthur Homewood to Quincy Morris. Count me in every time. I bear messages which will make both of your ears tingle. Art. Chapter 6. Mina Murray's Journal. 24th July Whitby Lucy met me at the station, looking sweeter and lovelier than ever. We drove up to the house at the Crescent in which they have rooms. This is a lovely place. The Little River, the Esk, runs through a deep valley, which broadens out just as it comes near the harbour. A great viaduct runs across with high piers through which the view seems somehow further away than it really is. The valley is beautifully green, and it is so steep that when you're on high land on either side, you can look right across it, unless you're near enough to see down. The houses of the old town, the side away from us, are all red-roofed and seem piled up one over the other anyhow, like the pictures that we see of Nuremberg, Right over the town is the ruin of Whitby Abbey, which was sacked by the Danes, and which is the scene of part of Marmion, where the girl was built up in the wall. It's a most noble ruin of immense size, and full of beautiful and romantic bits. There's a legend that a white lady is seen in one of the windows. Between it and the town, there is another church. The parish one round which is a big graveyard all full of tombstones this is to my mind the nicest spot in Whitby it lies right over the town and has a full view of the harbour and all up the bay to where the headland called the Kettleness stretches out into the sea it descends so steeply over the harbour. That part of the bank has fallen away. Some of the graves have been destroyed. In one place, part of the stonework of the graves stretches out over the sandy pathway far below. There are walks with seats beside them through the churchyard. People go and sit there all day, looking at the beautiful view, enjoying the breeze. I shall come and sit here very often myself and work. Indeed, I am writing now, with my book on my knee, listening to the talk of three old men who are sitting beside me. They seem to do nothing all day but sit up here and talk. The harbour lies below me, with on the far side one long granite wall stretching out into the sea, with a curve outwards at the end of it, in the middle of which is a lighthouse, a heavy seawall runs along outside of it. On the near side, the seawall makes an elbow crooked inversely, and its end too has a lighthouse. Between the two piers, there is a narrow opening into the harbour, which then suddenly widens. It is nice at high water, but when the tide is out, it shoals away to nothing, and there is merely the stream of the Esk, running between banks of sand with rocks here and there. Outside the harbour on this side there rises for about half a mile the Great Reef, the sharp edge of which runs straight out from behind the south lighthouse. At the end of it is a buoy with a bell, which swings in bad weather and sends a mournful sound on the wind. They have a legend here that when a ship is lost, bells are heard out at sea. I must ask the old man about this. He's coming this way. He's a funny old man. He must be awfully old. His face is gnarled and twisted like the bark of a tree. He tells me he's nearly a hundred, that he was a sailor in the Greenland fishing fleet when Waterloo was fought. He is, I am afraid, a very skeptical person, for so when I asked him about the bells at sea and the white lady he said very brusquely I wouldn't fash myself about them miss them things be all wore out mind I don't say that they never was but I do not say that there wasn't in my time they'd be all very well for comers and trippers and the like but not for a nice young lady like you them feet-folks from York and Leeds be always eating cured errands and drinking tea, looking out to buy a cheap jet would creed or... I wonder myself who'd be bothered telling lies to them, even the newspapers, which is full of fool-talk. I thought he would be a good person to learn interesting things from, so I asked him if he would mind telling me something about the whale-fishing in the old days. He was just settling himself to begin when the clock struck six whereupon he laboured to get up and said I must be going home now miss my granddaughter doesn't like to be kept waiting when the tea is ready for it takes me time to crammel noon the grease for there be many of them miss I lack belly timber silly by the clock he hobbled away and I could see him hurrying as well as he could down the steps the steps are a great feature on the place They lead from the town up to the church. There are hundreds of them. I do not know how many, and they wind up in a delicate curve. The slope is so gentle that a horse could easily walk up and down them. I think they must originally have had something to do with the abbey. I shall go home, too. Lucy went out visiting with her mother, and as they were only duty calls, I did not go. They will be home by this. Chapter 7, Mina Murray's Journal 1st of August I came up here an hour ago with Lucy. We had a most interesting talk with my old friend and the two others who always come and join him. He is evidently the Sir Oracle of them, and I should think must have been in his time a most dictatorial person. He will not admit anything and downfaces everybody. If he can't out-argue them, he bullies them, and then takes their silence for agreement with his views. Lucy was looking sweetly pretty in her white lawn frock. She has got a beautiful colour since she's been here. I noticed that the old men did not lose any time in coming up and sitting near her when we sat down. She is so sweet with old people, I think they all fell in love with her on the spot. Even my old man succumbed and did not contradict her, but gave me double share instead. I got him on the subject of the legends, and he went off at once into a sort of sermon. I must try and remember, and put it down. It'll be all full talk, lock, stock, and barrel. That's what it be, now else. These bands and wafts and balk ghosts and bar guests and boggles and all anent them... It's only fit to set bairns and dizzy women a bewildering. They be nowt but air blebs. They and all grims and signs and warnings be invented by parsons and illsome bookbodies, railway touters to skier and scunner halflings to get folks to do something that they don't otherwise incline to. Makes me eyeful to think of them. Why, it's them that not content with printing lies and paper and preaching them out of pulpits does want to be cutting them on tombstones look here all around you in what air you will, all them steens holding up their heads as well as they can out of their pride simply tumbling down with the weight of the lies wrote on them, here lies the body, sacred to the memory wrote on all of them, and yet in nigh half of them there being no bodies at all and the memories of them being cared a pinch of snuff about. Much less sacred. Lies, all of em. Nothing but lies, of one kind or another. My God, it'll be a queer scowdament at day judgment when they come tumbling up in their death sacks, all duped together and trying to drag their tombstones with them to prove how good they was. Some of them trembling and dithering, with their hands that dozened and slippy from lying in the sea that they can't even keep their grip of them. I could see from the old fellow's self-satisfied air and the way in which he looked around for approval of his cronies that he was showing off. So I put in a word to keep him going. Oh, Mr. Swales, you can't be serious. Surely these tombstones are not all wrong. Yablins... There may be a poorish few not wrong, saving where they make out the people too good. For there be folk that do think a barn be like the sea. If only it be their own. The whole thing be the lies. Now look you here. You come here, stranger, and you see this Kirkgarth. I nodded, for I thought it better to assent, though I did not quite understand his dialect. I knew it had something to do with the church. He went on. And you can say it, that all these steens be a boon folk that be happed here, snod and snog. I assented again. Then that be just where their lie comes in. Why, there be scores of these lay beds that be two as old duns back backer box on Friday night. He nudged one of his companions, and they all laughed. My Gog, how could they be otherwise? Look at that one. Read it. I went over and read. Edward. Spenslar, master mariner, murdered by pirates off the coast of Andres, April eighteen fifty four. When I come back, Mister Swales went on. Who brought him home? I wonder. To Happy murdered off coast of Andres, and you it his body lay under. Why I could name ye a dozen whose bones lie in the Greenland seas above, where the currents may have drifted em. There may be steams around ye ye can, with your young eyes, read the small print of the lies from here. This Braithwaite Lowry, under his father, lost in the lively off Greenland in 20, or Andrew Woodhouse, drowned in the same seas in 1777, John Paxton, drowned off Cape Farewell a year later, or old John Rawlins, whose grandfather sailed with me, drowned in the Gulf of Finland in 50. Do you think that all these men will have to make a rush to Whitby when the trumpet sounds? I have me anthrums about it. I tell you, that when they got here, they would be jumbling and Jostlin one another that way, that it'd be like a fight up on the ice of the old days, when we'd be at one another from daylight to dark, trying to tie up our cuts by the light of the Aurora Borealis. This was evidently a local pleasantry, for the old man cackled over it and his cronies joined in with gusto. But, I said, "'Surely you are not quite correct "'for your start on the assumption "'that all the poor people, or their spirits, "'will have to take their tombstones with them "'on the Day of Judgment. "'Do you think that will be really necessary?' "'Well, what else be their tombstones for?' "'Answer me that, miss. "'To please their relatives, I suppose.' "'To please their relatives, you suppose?' he said with intense scorn. "'How will it pleasure their relatives to know that lies is wrought over them, "'that everybody in the place knows that there be lies?' "'He pointed to a stone at our feet, "'which had been laid down as a slab on which the seat was rested, "'close to the edge of the cliff. "'Read the lies on that.' "'The letters were upside down to me from where I sat.' But Lucy was more opposite to them, so she leant over and read. Sacred to the memory of George Cannon, who died in the hope of a glorious resurrection on July 29th, 1873. Falling from the rocks at Kettleness, this tomb was erected by his sorrowing mother to her dearly beloved son. He was the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. Really, Mr. Swales, I don't see anything very funny in that. She spoke her comment very gravely and somewhat severely. Mm-hmm. You don't see how funny. But that's because, you don't know, the sorrowing mother was a hell-cat that hated him because he was a crooked, a regular lameter he was. He hated her, so that he committed suicide in order that she mightn't get an insurance that she put on his life. He blew nigh the top of his head off with an old musket, one they had for scaring the crows with. That's the way that he fell off the rocks. And as to hopes of a glorious resurrection, I've often heard him say myself that he hoped he'd go to hell, for his mother was so pious that she'd be sure to go to heaven, and he didn't want to addle where she was. Now isn't that steering at any rate? He hammered it with his stick as he spoke. A pack of lies. And what it make Gabriel keckle when Geordie comes panting up the grease with the tombstein balanced on his hump. "'and asks for it to be took as evidence. "'I did not know what to say, "'but Lucy turned the conversation as she said, rising up. "'Oh, why did you tell us all of this? "'It's my favourite seat, and I cannot leave it. "'And now I find I must go sitting over the grave of a suicide. "'Ah, that won't harm you, my pretty. "'And it make the poor Geordie Gladsome "'to have saw so trim lass sitting on his lap. "'That won't hurt you.' "'Why, I've sat here off and on for the nigh twenty years past, "'and hasn't done me no harm. "'Don't ye fash about them as lies under ye, "'or that doesn't lie there either. "'It'll be time for ye to be getting scarped "'when ye see the tombstones all run away with, "'and the place as bare as a stubble field. "'There's the clock. "'I must be gone. "'My service to ye ladies.' "'And off he hobbled. "'Lucy and I sat a while, and it was all so beautiful before us that we took hands as we sat. She told me all over again about Arthur and their coming marriage. That made me just a little heartsick, for I haven't heard from Jonathan for a whole month. The same day, I came up here alone, for I am very sad. There was no letter for me. I hope there cannot be anything the matter with Jonathan the clock has just struck nine. I see the lights scattered all over the town, sometimes in rows where the streets are and sometimes singly. They run right up the esk and die away in the curve of the valley. To my left, the view is cut off by a black line of roof of the old house next to the abbey. The sheep and lambs are bleating in the fields away behind me and there is a clatter of donkey's hoofs up the paved road below. The band on the pier is playing a harsh waltz in good time. Further along the quay, there is a Salvation Army meeting in a back street. Neither of the bands hears the other, but up here, I hear and see them both. I wonder where Jonathan is, and if he is thinking of me. wish he were here. Dr. Seward's Diary 5th of June The case of Renfield grows more interesting the more I get to understand the man. He has certain qualities very largely developed. Selfishness, secrecy and purpose. I wish I could get at what is the object of the latter. He seems to have some settled scheme of his own but what it is I do not yet know. His redeeming quality is a love of animals, though indeed he has such curious turns in it that I sometimes imagine he is only abnormally cruel. His pets are of odd sorts. Just now his hobby is catching flies. He has at present such a quantity that I have had myself to expostulate. To my astonishment, he did not break out into a fury, as I expected, but took the matter in simple seriousness. He thought for a moment and then said, May I have three days? I shall clear them away. Of course, I said that would do. I must watch him. 18th of June. He has turned his mind now to spiders and has got several very big fellows in a box. He feeds them with his flies, and the number of the latter is becoming sensibly diminished. Although he has used half his food in attracting more flies from outside to his room. First of July. His spiders are now becoming as great a nuisance as his flies. Today I told him he must get rid of them. He looked very sad at this, so I said that he must clear out some of them at all events he cheerfully acquiesced in this and I gave him the same time as before for reduction he disgusted me much whilst I was with him for when a horrid blowfly bloated with some carrion food buzzed into the room he caught it held it for a few moments between his finger and a thumb and before I knew what he was going to do he put it in his mouth and ate it I scolded him for it but He argued quietly that it was very good and very wholesome, that it was his life, strong life, it gave life to him. This gave me an idea, or the rudiments of one, where I must watch how he gets rid of his spiders. He has evidently some deep problem in his mind. He keeps a little notebook in which he is always jotting down something. Whole pages of it are filled with masses of figures. Generally, single numbers added up in batches. Then the totals are added in batches again. As though he were focusing some account, as the auditors put it. 8th of July. There is a method in his madness. And the rudimentary idea in my mind is growing. It will be a whole idea soon. And then, oh unconscious celebration, you will have to give the wall to your conscious brother. I kept away from my friend for a few days, so that I might notice if there were any change. Things remain as they were, except he has parted with some of his pets and got a new one. He has managed to get a sparrow, and has already partially tamed it. His means of taming is simple, for already the spiders have diminished. Those that do remain are well fed, for he still brings in the flies. Tempting them with his food. 19th of July. We are progressing. My friend has now a whole colony of sparrows. His flies and spiders are almost obliterated. When I came in, he ran to me and said he wanted to ask me a great favour, a very, very great favour. As he spoke, he fawned on me like a dog. I asked him what it was, and he said, with a sort of rapture in his voice and bearing, A kitten, a nice little sleek playful kitten that I can play with and teach and feed and feed and feed. I was not unprepared for this request. I had noticed how his pets went on increasing in size and vivacity. But I did not care that his pretty family of tame sparrows should be wiped out in the same manner as the flies and the spiders. So I said I would see about it, and asked him if he would not rather have a cat than a kitten. His eagerness betrayed him as he answered. Oh yes, I would like a cat. I only asked for a kitten lest you should refuse me a cat. No one would refuse me a kitten, would they? I shook my head and said that at present I feared it would not be possible, but that I would see about it. His face fell, and I could see a warning of danger in it. There was a sudden, fierce, sidelong look which meant killing. The man is an undeveloped homicidal maniac. I shall test him with his present craving and see how it works out. Then I shall know more. 10 p.m. I visited him again and found him sitting in a corner, brooding. When I came in, he threw himself on his knees before me and implored me to let him have a cat, that his salvation depended upon it. I was firm, however, and told him he could not have it, whereupon he went without a word, and sat down, gnawing his fingers in the corner where I had found him. I shall see him in the morning, early. 20th of July Visited Renfield very early, before the attendant went his rounds found him up and humming a tune. He was spreading out his sugar, which he had saved in the window, and was manifestly beginning his fly-catching again, and beginning it cheerfully and with good grace. I looked around for his birds, and not seeing them, I asked him where they were. He replied, without turning around, that they had all flown away, there were a few feathers about the room and on his pillow a drop of blood I said nothing but went on and told the keeper to report to me if there was anything odd about him during the day 11am the attendant has just been to me to say that Renfield has been very sick and disgorged a lot of feathers my belief is doctor he said that he's eaten his birds and he took them and ate them raw 11 pm. I gave Renfield a strong opiate tonight, enough to make even him sleep. I took away his pocketbook to look at it. The thought that's been buzzing around my brain lately is complete, and the theory proved. My homicidal maniac is of a peculiar kind. I shall have to invent a new classification for him and call him a zoophagus, a life eating maniac. What he desires is to absorb as many lives as he can. He has laid himself out to achieve it in a cumulative way. He gave many flies to one spider and many spiders to one bird. Then he wanted a cat to eat the many birds and what would have been his later steps. It would almost be worthwhile to complete the experiment. It might be done if only there were a sufficient cause Men sneered at vivisection, and look at its results today. Why not advance science in its most difficult and vital aspect? The knowledge of the brain. Had I even the secret of one such mind, did I hold the key to the fancy of even one lunatic? I might advance my own branch of science to a pitch compared with which Burden Sanderson's physiology or Ferrier's brain knowledge would be as nothing. If only there were a sufficient cause. I must not think too much about this, or I may be tempted. A good cause might turn the scale with me. For may not I, too, be of an exceptional brain, congenitally? How well the man reasoned. Lunatics always do within their own scope. I wonder at how many lives he values a man, or if at only one he's closed the account most accurately today began a new record how many of us begin a new record with each day of our lives to me it seems only yesterday that my whole life ended with my new hope and that truly i began a new record so it will be until the great recorder sums me up and closes my ledger account with a balance to profit or loss oh lucy Lucy, I cannot be angry with you, nor can I be angry with my friend whose happiness is yours, but I must only wait on hopeless and work, work, work. If only I could have as strong a cause as my poor mad friend there, a good unselfish cause to make me work, that would be indeed happiness. Mina Murray's Journal 26th of July. I am anxious, and it soothes me to express myself here. It is like whispering to oneself and listening at the same time, and there is also something about the shorthand symbols that make it different from writing. I am unhappy about Lucy and about Jonathan. I had not heard from Jonathan for some time, and was very concerned, but yesterday... Dear Mr. Hawkins, who is always so kind, sent me a letter from him. I had written asking him if he had heard, and he said the enclosed had just been received. It is only a line dated from Castle Dracula, and says that he is just starting for home. That is not like Jonathan. I do not understand it, and it makes me uneasy.' Then to Lucy, although she is so well, has lately taken to her old habit of walking in her sleep. Her mother has spoken to me about it, and we've decided that I'm to lock the door of our room every night. Mrs. Westenra has got an idea that sleepwalkers go out on roofs of houses and along the edges of cliffs. Suddenly wakened, they fall over with a despairing cry that echoes all over the place. Poor dear. She's naturally anxious about Lucy and tells me that her husband, Lucy's father, had the same habit. He would get up in the night, dress himself and go out if he were not stopped. Lucy is to be married in the autumn. She's already planning out her dresses and how her house is to be arranged. I sympathize with her, for I do the same. Only Jonathan and I will start in life in a very simple way and shall will have to try to make both ends meet. Mr Holmwood, he is the Honourable Arthur Holmwood, only son of Lord Godalming, coming up here very shortly, as soon as he can leave town, for his father is not very well. I think dear Lucy is counting the moments till he comes. She wants to take him up to the seat on the churchyard cliff, show him the beauty of Whitby. I dare say it's the waiting which disturbs her. She'll be alright when he arrives. 27th of July. No news from Jonathan. I'm getting quite uneasy about him. Though why I should, I do not know. But I do wish that he would write. If it were only a single line. Lucy walks more than ever. Each night I am awakened by her moving about the room. Fortunately, the weather is so hot she cannot get cold. But still the anxiety and the perpetually being wakened is beginning to tell on me. I'm getting nervous and wakeful myself. Thank God Lucy's health keeps up. Mr. Homewood's been suddenly called to ring to see his father, who's been taken seriously ill. Lucy frets at the postponement of seeing him, but it does not touch her looks. She's a trifle stouter, and her cheeks are a lovely rose pink. She's lost that anemic look which she had. I pray it will all last. 3rd of August. Another week gone and no news from Jonathan. Not even to Mr. Hawkins from whom I have heard. I do hope he's not ill. He surely would have written. I look at that last letter of his but somehow it does not satisfy me. It does not read like him. Yet it is his writing. There is no mistake of that. Lucy has not walked much in her sleep the last week, but there is an odd concentration about her which I do not understand. Even in her sleep she seems to be watching me. She tries the door and finding it locked goes about the room searching for the key. 6th of August. Another three days and no news. This suspense is getting dreadful. If I only knew where to write to or where to go to, I should feel easier... But no one has heard a word of Jonathan since that last letter. I must only pray to God for patience. Lucy is more excitable than ever, but is otherwise well. Last night was very threatening. The fishermen say we're in for a storm. I must try to watch it and learn the weather signs. Today is a grey day, and the sun, as I write, is hidden in thick clouds, high over Kettleness. Everything is grey, except the green grass, which seems like emerald amongst it. Grey earthy rock, grey clouds tinged with the sunburst at the far edge, hanging over the grey sea, into which the sand points stretch like grey fingers. The sea is tumbling, tumbling in over the shallows and the sandy flats with a roar, muffled in the sea mists drifting inland. The horizon is lost in a grey mist. All is vastness. The clouds are piled up like giant rocks and there is a brule over the sea that sounds like some presage of doom. Dark figures are on the beach here and there, sometimes half shrouded in the mist and seem men like trees walking. The fishing boats are racing for home and rise and dip in the ground swell as they sweep into the harbour, mending to the scuppers. Here comes old Mr. Swales, making straight for me, and I can see by the way he lifts his hat that he wants to talk. I've been quite touched by the change in the poor old man. When he sat down beside me, he said in a very gentle way, "'I want to say something to you, miss.' I could see he was not at ease, so I took his poor old wrinkled hand in mine, and I asked him to speak fully, so he said, leaving his hand in mine, I'm afraid, my dearie, I must have shocked you by all the wicked things I've been saying about the dead and such like for the weeks past, but I didn't mean them. And I want ye to remember that when I'm gone, we old folks that be daffled and with one foot abaft the crook or don't altogether like to think of it. We don't want to feel scarred of it, and that's why I've took to making light of it. So I'd cheer up my own heart a bit. But Lord love ye, Miss. I ain't afraid of dying not a bit. Only I don't want to die if I can help it. My time must be nigh at hand now, for I be old. And a hundred years is too much for any man to expect. And I'm so nigh that it might the old man is already wetting his scythe. You see, I can't get out of the habit of caffing about it all at once. The chaffs will whack as they used to. Some day soon, the angel of death will sound his trumpet for me. But don't ye dole and greet, my dearie. For he saw that I was crying... If he should come this very night, I'd not refuse to answer his call. For life be, after all, only a waiting for something else than what we're doing, and death be all that we can rightly depend on. But I'm content, for it's coming to me, my dearie, and it's coming quick. It may be coming while we be looking and wondering. "'Maybe it's in that wind out over the sea "'that's bringing in with it loss and wreck and sore distress "'and sad hearts. "'Look, look,' he cried suddenly. "'There's something in that wind, "'and in the host beyond that sounds and looks and tastes and smells like death. "'It's in the air. "'I feel it coming. "'Lord, make me answer cheerful when my call comes.' He held up his arms devoutly and raised his hat. His mouth moved as though he were praying. After a few minutes' silence he got up, shook hands with me and blessed me, and said goodbye and hobbled off. It all touched me and upset me very much. I was glad when the Coast Guard came along with his spyglass under his arm. He stopped to talk to me, as he always does, but all the time kept looking at a strange ship. "'I can't make her out,' he said. "'She's a Russian, by the look of her, but she's knocking about in the queerest way. She doesn't know her mind a bit. She seems to see the storm coming, but can't decide whether to run up north in the open or to put in here. Look there again.' She steered mighty strangely, for she... Doesn't mind the hand on the wheel. Changes about with every puff of wind. We'll hear more of her before this time tomorrow.